These are extraordinary days. Just when we thought a global pandemic was weakening its three-year grip on the globe, we have dangerous levels of inflation in many countries, skyrocketing energy prices in many Western countries, and an ongoing and bitter war on Europe's doorstep. But now, the latest unfolding natural disaster of the recent floods across significant parts of southeastern Australia. But today, let's look at a few positives for the industry that we know and love. Welcome to The Yarn. It's a podcast for the Australian wool industry. I'm Marius Cumming. So in this episode, we get to hear the thoughts of one of the largest buyers and exporters of Australian wool. Jamie Lilly is the Managing Director of Fox & Lilly Export. Fox & Lilly is a 70-year-old family-owned wool business that covers the supply chain from brokering through to export and processing, with Fox & Lilly processing businesses including wool combing into tops and open tops, carbonising and scouring. So Jamie Lilly says from his perspective, given the global uncertainty on so many levels, wool is actually in a strong position. During the pandemic, what, change, what seemed to change a lot was, of course, suits stopped getting sold and all of a sudden people were thinking, well, what, what can I do? And so people were allowed to walk and go outdoors and hike or whatever, you know, in some cases, maybe not in Australia. But um, you know, so that outdoor um, tendency actually was meant a lot more of the sort of wool next to skin wool active outdoor wear got sold. And, and that created this, I think the demand that we saw that we didn't expect during COVID. So suits disappeared, but the active outdoor wear and knitwear and more casual wool product um, took, took a fair bit of the wool that, we, that traditionally would have been used in the suiting market. And uh, that, was a real, that was a real plus for the as far as I, as far as we saw for the market, now now what's happened just lately is that the suits people are going back to offices, so suits have have recovered a bit and wovens have recovered a bit, uh, but still this active outdoor wear is going very well, and um, I, I think that that's the main sort of thrust behind a reasonably good picture for wool, as far as I see it. Um, we also have, um, you know, there's the uniform business. A lot of countries still make their uniforms out of wool. For instance, China, a lot of their uniforms on the trains and the army and etc. Are, are made out of wool. So, um, they're, you know, they're significant parts of this industry. Um, also, wool is generally included is as a sort of more upmarket product in into upmarket products so its price point tends to be a bit higher um, and that's good for the wool growers that gets passed back generally through the supply chain um, and that's it's probably the wealthier end of the world that hasn't really been as badly affected with covid so I, I, we we see a reasonably good picture for wool going ahead with the range of products and and just its current current situation around the world in terms of its usage, but also very much in terms of its price point at the moment is extremely interesting with the the low prices of the lower prices at the moment, but particularly caused by the US dollar 
or the Aussie dollar drop against the US dollar? So I'm going to ask a fairly dumb question now, but um, is do you want prices to be high or low? As, as a, an exporter and a processor, I assume that you're, you, you take ownership of the wool for a fair portion of it. So how do you balance the conflicting um, requirements to, to want to maximise the returns for wool growers, but also maximise your own returns from the wool that you purchase from them? Um. Yeah, well, that's no, that's a, that's a good question. Um, we we are, as an exporter, we are effectively a trading company. So we, uh, and it's generally accepted that we operate on pretty low margins, but with high turnover. Um, and like, if farmers aren't happy, they soon they soon will tell us. Um, I have and, noticed that. Yeah, <laughs> and. Um, you know, farmers check prices, and uh, that's that's a normal part of the program. For us, on the on the export side, we have multiple competitors. Uh, you know, at going everywhere. At to, you, you basically don't have a client of your own. You know, there's always competitors in there, quoting against you. So it's a very tight business on both sides. I would say uh, it's very the auction helps in many respects to uh, make sure pricing is very, very transparent. And um, so it's, look, it's a, I think it's a, it's currently works pretty well overall. overall. Um, we'd like to probably see if a few more kilos transacted on a forward basis. Um, uh, the problem there is uh, you might have some willing farmers, but you don't have so many willing um, processors overseas. And uh, and some and depending on prices, that could reverse. You'll have willing overseas people that want to look into buying, you know, one year out or even more. But you don't have many willing farmers that want to sell when the prices are low. You know, so it tends to be a little bit of a um, cat and mouse that that business. But if we had more forward pricing, we think that'll give more certainty to wool growers about the price of their wool, so that they don't have to worry about this rather um, sort of traditional approach of just firing into the auction and waiting for it to get sold, um, which is, you know, you're just really taking the price of the day there and that can be good. It can be also uh, not so good. But are you surprised that we haven't seen uh, more uptake of supply chain um, arrangements such as that, whereas perhaps the grower owns the wool through to further down to, to garment stage or yarn stage and vice versa. And given that um, retailers are now wanting to tell that provenance story and reach back and, and have a better arrangement with growers, why haven't we seen that model from years ago um, evolve and be taken up? Um, well, that, that's, that's... So... There is a bit of traceability type of uh, supply chain uh, business around, that's true. Uh, and uh, for instance, within the RWS, the Responsible Wool Standard, there is a traceability element of that and, and you can follow the wool from the farmer all the way through to the garment. Um, so that it's it's there. The, the problem I was really talking about is not so, that that's available not everyone wants it, um, but that is definitely available to the industry. You're talking more about financial uh, forward contracts and... Well, I'm talking there about a traceable yeah. product that we can say that 
you know, that farmer's wool mm. goes into that particular garment. Um, in terms of the forwards, yeah, well, some, you know, that's sort of, it's a, it's a really, it's sort of related, but it's a different... It's but it's, uh, I mean, I think the wool industry started uh, forward contracts back in the 60s, oh, yeah. and uh, maybe it's because wool is uh, a non-perishable item that wool growers like to manage yeah. their risk by just holding it. Well, that's true. Yeah, that's, that's a good point. Um, that is a good point. Um, they can hold it. And that's, that's, that's been, we've seen in the last two years wool growers exercising their right to pass wool in probably at levels never seen before, you know, or they just didn't put it up for auction. They just left it in the warehouse. They weren't happy with the prices and they said, that's enough, you know, I don't want, I don't want to sell it. Um, so that, yeah, that was very prevalent. So we were having, uh, you know, in 2020 and 21, we we're having wool sales of 20 and 20,000 bales, 20 and 25,000 bales, you know, small sales, um, which we wouldn't normally be having 45. Um, and all that was really clever, I think, from the wool growers point of view, because it, it made them, it, it gave them the power and it, and it probably stopped a free fall if everybody had started selling, you know, the, their wool, you know, there was, there could have been, it was, it was bad enough. It could have got been a lot worse, as, you know. And they, yeah, they possibly weren't forced to sell for, yeah, good cropping seasons or good land That's prices. That's right. Have, no, but look, yeah. for sure, there was so many other enterprises that were also going well. Um, but you are, you are worried about the supply of uh, merino wool and particularly some types of merino wool into the future, given the marginalisation of, uh, of, of specific wool growing in Australia? Yeah, well, uh, I don't think Marius... Uh, I haven't seen for a long while, if it's ever happened, such big, massive percentage gaps in the microns. It, it's dropped back a bit more recently, but um, on the, especially on the fine wool. But, the, you know, the, the price differences between 16 and a half all the way through to 21 microns, I don't think we've seen such big percentage gaps. Certainly we haven't seen such big dollar gaps. Uh, they, these are enormous and that's, so that's 21 micron wool, you know, let's just say $12 clean and uh, 16 and a half, I think got to $30 clean. So like we, you have $18 for whatever it is, is that it, uh, it's four and a half microns you know, different. So that, that's extraordinary. So there's going to be uh, probably pressure on people. They might be thinking to reduce the production of 21s and move a bit finer. Or the problem is that what they're seeing are these great prices for lamb and lamb, and there's a lot of farmers switching out of the, out of, uh, they continue to switch out of merino wool into crossbred. So from your vantage point in the industry, which is uh, such an interesting one, given your, your global perspective, is the, is the wool pipeline relatively dry? Is there a stockpile somewhere? Um, how are you viewing the flow of wool globally at the moment? Yeah, um, that, that is, that, I think that's been, so to explain, my theory is that there was a lot of, uh, or our theory, I should say, there was a lot of our clients overseas that were buying during COVID, and especially in the last year when things sort of have been picking up quite strongly. Then we had these massive logistics shipping issues around the world. So at that very time, we had these 
um, problems where uh, shipping times doubled. Uh, so, you know, between here and China might have been three weeks. It started, went out to six. Um, the, the cost of the freight to Europe went from $2,000 a container to 10 uh, the, to move wool, you move, move your tops or whatever from China to Europe, at one point I think got to 20,000 US. Um, so these are for a container. So these are massive increases in, and changes in logistics. Now what's happened in the last few months is things are starting to settle down. But in response to these ma- massive um, massive moves uh, in, in, the, in lo- massive problems within the logistics side of things. We saw some of our clients buying a bit more than they normally would, buying a little bit earlier because they were worried about supply. Now things have sort of improved a bit. We, we, we feel it's kind of concertinaed a little bit, the supply. So there's a bit more supply coming on than they thought. Uh, and so that we think that's slowed a bit of the buying in the last um, couple of months, and hence the price drop. The other big factor is China's still trying, going after the zero COVID policy, and a lot of the mill owners there are worried uh, that about that, and can they get their people in, and etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. And you know the, the government's shutting down factories, and so they they've been careful to buy to buy wool, but overall. Um, I don't think there's huge stock. Your question was, I think there might have been a bit of indigestion coming up because of this concertina effect due to the the improvement in the logist, global logistics. But um, I think there's not a lot of greasy wool sitting around the place. There might be quite a lot of crossbred wool, probably not a lot of greasy merino, I should say. Quite a lot of crossbred wool. It's very, very cheap crossbred wool at the moment. Um, and the, the people have been buying it because it is so cheap. Um, and uh, so, and, and to wool top, and those, I don't think the stocks are enormous at all. In fact, you know, I've been told by European clients that it's actually really low. Um, and, and similarly, yarn. Most of the yarn spinners around uh, outside China, I should say, are really, really busy. Um, inside China, they're not so busy, but I think they're pretty, pretty busy. So the picture for them, I don't think there's a lot of stock there either. So, and I'm not really sure on garments. Uh, I would imagine it's not, not particularly big on garments either. I think they were very careful during COVID not to overproduce. Um, so I think, yeah, I, they're the reasons why we're sort of pretty, I think the picture for wool on the demand side is, is, is quite good. And on the supply side, it, it's probably a bit, um, it's not particularly long in terms of uh, large stocks. Um, we, we might even see fine wool again have another lean year because it's been such a great, uh, almost uh, too wet, but it's been a good season. Probably microns won't be as fine as we've seen. And, um, and uh, so that could cause a little bit of a push up again in the prices in the fine wool area, even though they were very dear, um, you know, at their peak in the last 12 months. So also as a, a processor, you've got a great look into the, the cost of processing wool. And of course, with the price of energy being um, so exorbitant at the moment, uh, you've got a great perspective on just what it costs to, to, yeah. to get greasy wool through to... Uh, 
further down the chain? It's, yeah, it's, um, so I spoke to one of our um, good clients earlier and, and he said that, in fact, the clients are paying it, energy's gone up, but clients are paying it. Uh, so that's interesting. And because, uh, you know, that's probably the talk of the town in Europe. In Europe, uh, energy prices have gone up by, you know, between three and six times. So this is a massive difference. So that's energy for process, combing the wool, scouring the wool, spinning it, weaving it, the whole thing. So there's, and it's not just about wool either. It's about everything. You're making a car, whatever it is. The power price have gone up enormously. But China, they haven't gone up. Thailand, they haven't gone up much. So there's some really interesting contrasting stuff going on with power prices. Um, people are choosing to, uh, Americans and, you know, there's a, there is a bit of a push, call it anti-China, um, but there is a bit of a push to source um, goods outside China. So those markets in Europe, those markets in outside non non-Asian, non-Chinese Asian markets, those those markets are actually going pretty well at the moment um, as people try to get some of their product uh, from origins other than China. Interesting. So uh, you're painting a picture of uh, some form of optimism despite a lot of global economic doom. Yeah, I, yeah I, yes, that would be my, my thought. Um, that I think will perform, wool will perform relatively well to other fibres and, and certainly man-made fibres. Um, I think, yeah, that's, that's our position at the moment. Uh, things can change, but I think it's, uh, it's, a, it's quite a good picture at the moment. Now, turning to AWI, you've, got a, you've had an interesting... Um history with Australian Wool Innovation, particularly with uh, being on the steering committee for the uh, for Wool Selling System The Wool review, Selling yeah. System Review. I see, I've sort of almost forgotten it. It was that long <laughs> ago. Um, it was a while ago. How yeah. do you see that evolving? Um, it's, uh, it's been a really interesting and difficult few years, but um, where do you see that at the moment? Um, well, the, the old wool, the, the old, the wool exporter is a very, is, is quite, kind of quite traditional in many ways, and the wool market is quite traditional. Um, I think in many respects, the, what we recommended on the wool selling system review weren't probably taking things far enough to make them really that different to what we are doing now. And I think because of that, we've just reverted back to, you know, auction system and that's what we're doing. Um, and uh, I think it was a worthwhile exercise to check everything. I don't think it was, it was I, I think it was uh, interesting to find out about different views and in different industries. But overall, we really, Wool Q's the big one that came out of it. And at this point, it's still, you know, I hope it succeeds. I, I just think it probably has to go one step further than what we're looking at at the moment. It's interesting, isn't it? Because through COVID, the move to selling livestock uh, moved almost seamlessly to Auctions Plus. It was just, to really it was quite rem remarkable. But um, wool hasn't had that same transformation. But 
Uh, Wool Q also, also has the, um, you know, it's a, it's a, it's a future facing uh, technology. And uh, where, where do you see Wool Q's role, particularly when you look at um, certification systems, uh, the need for traceability and the need for provenance? Yeah, well, pro provenance with wool isn't so difficult because, you know, we have the brand of the, the, as an exporter, we have the brand of the farmer. If we want to really find out who the farmer is, we can do that. Uh, he can probably just Google it in mo most cases. And when we sell that wool, we know that those bales go to this client. And if this client wants to take, that will be blended with other wool, of course, but if that client, uh, that overseas client, if they're interested, they can ask us, you know, and we, we normally would ask the permission of the grower, etc. They can ask us to supply the, the name of the grower and they can follow it through like that. So it's, it's not such a, it's, it's not that challenging, the, the, that side of it. I think this, it was a selling system review and I think, um, as I said, I just think we probably Wool Q had to go that one step further to really push that. Let's, it was sort of looking at a non-auction or an automatic auction, those sorts of things, uh, or sort of more um, direct private dealing with the with Wool. Um, but it, I don't think it's just got, gone that far. Just as an aside, we run a, a private catalogue that we, that we send out to all the exporters from our farmers. And uh, so that's we do quite a lot of direct selling, um, but it's still done on the spot market pretty much on the day. Uh, so what we're, the other thing we're looking for is the, what we touched on before, this sort of idea of a forward market, but it takes two sides. You've got to have a willing client overseas and you've got to have a willing farmer seller. And I, yeah, it was a, you also made another good point, Marius, that that used to be huge uh, 30 or 40 years ago, the futures market in wool was massive, really massive. In fact, the first futures contract in Australia, I think, was wool. And um, it's, it's just dived to, to the point where today they're not, we have a kind of futures, but it's not, uh, it's not an official market, if you like. So from um, your perspective, how do you think AWI are going uh, in terms of selling uh, wool to the world, keeping wool's place in terms of a sustainable natural fibre, uh, as well as working for wool growers in Australia? What are we doing well? What can we improve on? Oh, that well, that's you know, it's a hard question because it's uh, it's uh, it can be a thankless task, of course. I think I actually really respect, and I I, I think it's a they do a great job on many levels, uh, the levels that I understand. Now I I'm not an expert on AWI's functions, but uh, from what I see, is they've got the some really good programs like the fashion uh, awards that they give every year and the promotion out into into with the big brands and the big brands sort of start the process so if a big brand uses wool in a certain item you know other brands follow so it, it's it's getting wool out in front of of the, the the world in terms of the big brand world in new york or in rome or in paris or wherever and that is that sort of i think awi has been doing that pretty well um 
they on a on a relatively limited budget for given given um, the the cost the cost of global marketing the real cost of global marketing you know putting ads on televisions is it, just extraordinary um, what they're doing is trying to be much more uh, uh, directional trying to be more specific and I, I believe they're doing a great job and. Uh, it's it's a tough market out there. There's there's lots of great new man-made fibers that are so-called you know environmentally friendly and all of these things. There's there's also cotton. There's, there's there's things competing with wool, but all the same, I think wool's in a in a as I've said before in a in a good position on the global market. And I think a lot of that is thanks to AWI. I don't think that sort of thing happens without an AWI promoting. You know, the US prices for wool are very interesting at the moment. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, being so low? Yeah, being so low. So wool, wool so has I think a, that's is going wool to, relatively looking very cheap as a fibre? Yeah, yeah. You know, the, you know, if you look at some of these percentiles that we study, uh, you know, they're five-year, seven-year, ten-year. They're, they're all, you know, most of the micron categories are really low like bottom 10%, bottom 20%, bottom 5%. Crossbred wool is at zero, you know, so in US dollars. So that's, that's never, has been cheaper for 10 years, but actually it probably hasn't been cheaper for longer. So that, I mean, that was actually what we talked about at Cheap Benching, because I said, uh, you know, 28 micron wool, it, it's still a fibre that can be used for, um, for, for heavy knitwear. Um, yeah. But, and in the past, we've seen that start to substitute for the, the slightly stronger Reno microns, but there's just been no substitution since COVID. It's flatlined. That's that, that's that's a really good point and worth making. Yeah, I, I personally we can't quite believe it. We're thinking somebody would have invented some product using 28 to 30 micron wool. There's a lot of that in Australia. Uh, our wool is is as good as anywhere in the world, nearly on the crossbred side, and it is uh, it's it's also as cheap as any of the wool in the world, uh, crossbred wool in the world. So there's, a, I think, a really interesting opportunity um, to use that in new products. Um, and if they did, it'll, it'll, it should, I believe, use a lot of kilos of wool and the market should push up, you would, you would think. Um, mm. But it just hasn't done it and it's been, you know, a couple of years now and the, the market's sort of done nothing. But right now... Uh, in US dollars, with a dollar at 63, it's very interestingly priced. It's been uh, a great pleasure. Thank you very much for uh, having a, a chat today. It's, it's wonderful to hear your, your view and perspective on this great industry. Thanks for having you on with us. Thank you, Marius. Pleasure. Jamie Lilly, the General Manager of Fox and Lilly Export there, and great to hear from such a significant voice from the wool industry. If you have someone you'd like me to catch up with for The Yarn, please let me know through email at theyarnatwool.com. So for now, from me, Marius Cumming, thanks for having a yarn with me.